If you have your Bibles, you may open them up to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. Uh, This is my favorite chapter in the entire book of Genesis, and one of my favorite chapters in the entire Old Testament. And uh, I am excited to preach it, but I'm not preaching all of it today, but just the first six verses. We'll preach and look at the rest of it next week. It is a glorious chapter, but before we begin studying God's word together, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, this is your word, it is not ours. Because this is your word, would you help us today to understand it, give light and illumination to us by your spirit, and would you work in our hearts so that we might be submissive to it, not more than just submissive, that we might We might delight in the hope that we have for us in this text. That we would revel in it, that we may rejoice in you, our God, our Redeemer. In your Son's name we pray, amen. Sometimes the stories that we see or read about, they capture our imagination. They can unpack an idea better than merely saying a, a propositional statement. And such is the story of Edgar Allan Poe, 1843, when he publishes a, uh, The Telltale Heart. Maybe that's a familiar story to you. Maybe you had to read that in school. Maybe you were supposed to read that in school, but you didn't. Uh, but I'll give you a crash course in it. Today, basically, this young man, this servant, uh, he, there is a person that he is caring for, an older man. He's living in the home with him. And there is something about that man. He has an eye that is bright and blue, and it disturbs this young man significantly to the point where he decides to murder this man just for no other reason, despite the fact that this man has been generally good to him and nice to him and, and supportive of him and have helped him in so many ways, yet just by looking at this guy, whenever, whenever this old man looks at him, his whole soul revolts against him and he wants to kill him. And so he, he begins to plot and conspire to do just that. And so he would go at night and sit there at the door and open it just a crack. And he looks in... And one evening when the man hears him, jumps up, the the man uh, at the door decides that it is time to take action. And he, he rushes in, kills the man, waits for his heart to stop, makes sure that his life functions have ceased entirely. And then he dismembers him in the bathtub and, and pushes, I know it's a bit harsh for church, but he, 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 it's Edgar Allan Poe after all. And, and, and he opens up the floorboards to the bedroom and he puts the body or the remnants of the body under the floorboards of the room and there is not a drop, there is not a trace. Clearly, he didn't have CSI on his mind back then, but he thought there's no way for anyone to know what he has done and then there is a, a knock at the door and it's police officers and he goes to the door and they, a neighbor has heard that there was a shout. And this man, absolutely confident in having disposed of the body without a trace, he invites them in. Look over the whole house, he says. Come in, search every closet, every room. He even brings them into the very room in which he has put the body under the floorboards, shows them where he, this man stays and says, oh, the man is simply away in the country. He is not here tonight. The, the disturbance that you heard, I had a frightful dream and I awoke and, and that's, that's all that you heard. And he pulls up chairs in his confidence, in his arrogance. He pulls up chairs over the very spot where he has put this body. And there they sit, him and the police officers, and they talk. And they chat away friendly two, three, four in the morning, whatever time it is, you know, talking and engaging, and he is reveling in the fact that they have no clue until he begins to hear what at first sounds to him just like a a watch ticking, but he he realizes it's it's not a heart, and he thinks it's it's just in his head, but it can't be, because every time he, he talks, 
it gets louder. And he starts talking louder, and the louder it gets. Until he realizes what is, what is beating, what is, what is ticking, is the man's heart. It is still going. And the police officers themselves, they must hear it. And the only reason they are feigning ignorance is because they're toying with him. And so at the very end of the story, overcome with guilt, he cries out. He, he, he offers himself up to be arrested. Villains, he tells the police, villains. Dissemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here, here. It is the beating of his hideous heart. Guilt. Guilt so works in him that it causes him to hear something that couldn't possibly be going on. Our world does a good job today of trying to eliminate all sources of guilt. Doesn't it? It tries to free us from that old Christian morality, any remnants of it. But rather than getting rid of morality or right and wrong or any sources of guilt, rather what has happened is that guilt has been multiplied in a whole host of areas. In fact, we have in our culture reasons that we are told we ought to feel guilty in a whole variety of ways that before, we just never contemplated. Teens, there is enormous pressure that when you get a message, no matter how late or early in the morning, you answer it immediately. In fact, the studies are showing that teens are getting enormously less sleep these days than they did 10, 15, 20 years ago, simply for this anxiety over missing something being held accountable for it. And there is incredible pressure, especially on you young people, to change the world, to save the world, to, to, to make a difference in everything you do, to be aware of every problem and to be opposed to it in some form or fashion. Parents, you, you don't escape this. I mean... From the time children are little, mothers are given a whole host of ways that they are to care for their child. Are your children on a sleep schedule or are they not? Are they rigidly held to that or do you have flexibility? And everyone has a different opinion on it. It goes, it goes farther than that. Are they, are they sleeping with you? Are, you? are you giving them the right kinds of food, organic food? Are the cereals the right kind of cereals? In our home, we, we are sugary cereal kind of people. We are totally tearing away from that morality. Our boys, it's pretty much whatever you enjoy. Marshmallows, the more, the merrier. You know, whether our kids are using environmentally friendly materials, do you have straws, plastic straws? How, how dare you? If your kids aren't involved in preschool from an, a very early age, you're, you're made to feel as if you are not a good parent. Or if they're not involved in, in a number of after-school activities, well, you're just standing in the way of their development. Not only that, but parents, you, you have this pressure to, to have Instagram-worthy vacations regularly. To be able to post online everything that you do. To be as happy as the happiest people there are on, on television, on the advertisements. Adults were judged by how often we exercise or our fitness level. Have we been using that Peloton bike lately? How many steps did you get in yesterday? And it's not enough to have a gym. Now you, you're supposed to, the really elite people, they are in CrossFit, which is the pinnacle and they can look down on, on the rest of us. We're also judged by the products we buy. It's not enough to simply have good food. Now you need to be food that is absolutely organic, absolutely can't have processed food, no preservatives. More than this, are your, it, we care about where our food comes from. We want to make sure that our food has a, a reputable genealogical history that they are responsibly sourced, that our 
coffee is fair trade coffee. That our fish is sustainably sourced. That our our makeup is... um, I just saw an advertisement for the other day and it just slipped me. But even, even the makeup... Not that I was wearing it, just to be clear. But even the makeup, there was, there was a cause attached to it. Cruelty-free. Cruelty-free. You, you ladies, you were filling in the blank for me. Thank you. As I was thinking through this, I came across the idea. You know, avocados have become increasingly popular. And I found that it's not sufficient. Even though avocados are supposed to be incredibly good for you, they're, they are superfood which to me, they just taste super bad. (laughs) But avocados, it's not merely enough to eat avocados. You have to eat avocados that are from the right places. Apparently, it is alleged that avocados from California and Chile, they, because avocados require a a certain amount of water, uh, water is being pushed to those sources from other regions and is contributing to drought, and so you shouldn't buy avocados from Chile or California. More than that, you can't buy uh, avocados from Mexico. Those are called blood blood avocados. I didn't know there was such a thing. But because the Mexican cartels, the drug cartels, are are involved in in some indirect way there. And, and, And so you can't buy them there. The only place you can get them is from New Zealand. Apparently, everything in New Zealand is perfect. That's that's what you can take away. And our world regularly manufactures things for which we are to feel guilty. And there is no forgiveness for this. If you find yourself on the, on the wrong side of what the world says is now right, there is no forgiveness. And because we now live in a digital age... Anything you say online, anything you said 20 years ago, kids, today, there is no forgetfulness. One of the things that continues to pop up almost every month is that some tweet, some statement, whether it be an athlete or an actor or an actress or a politician or some person from years ago said something that is now considered ignorant, bigoted, wrong. And they lose their jobs, they lose their lives, they lose their livelihoods, they lose their friends. There is no forgiveness, there is no forgetfulness. And it is this low-grade guilt that simmers on the back burner of many people's lives today. We're not even talking about how we, if we are Christians following Christ that low-grade guilt that we may be carrying with us for having not done what we are to do and in doing what we are to do, not doing it with all of our hearts in love for God. We have mixed motives. Our hearts are not pure. The Apostle Paul at the end of Romans 7, we can sympathize with when he cries out, Who shall deliver me from this body of death? He's so frustrated with himself. And where are we to find relief? The world would tell us we just need to love ourselves, accept ourselves. But our great offense isn't against ourselves, is it? A man who hurts someone else, their chief responsibility isn't to to learn to love themselves again, is it? To accept themselves. Maybe they should not be accepting themselves. To learn to justify ourselves. That is to, to, to work so that we can undo or at least outweigh our wrongs by doing more that is right. Sure, that was my action in the past, but now I'm working to undo that. Now I'm working to justify that. Now I'm working, I'm on the right side of history. As if it's okay if a man 
or a woman does something terrible, but it's okay because they are a hard worker. One thing, one good thing does not cancel out a terrible thing. We break God's law at one point, Jesus says, and we are guilty of breaking it all. We can't justify ourselves. We can't and don't have the authority to forgive ourselves. We are sinners through and through. We are, as Paul will write in Romans chapter 2, we are without excuse. For by works of the law, no one shall be justified before God. And the question that comes to us then is, what hope is there? What hope is for us dealing with guilt and shame that sticks with us? That permeates your thoughts. That sits with you right before you go to bed and you drift off to sleep. And that guilt over something you've done years ago. The shame over something that someone else has done to you. What hope is there? Genesis 15 speaks to that issue. Notice first with me. We read these things. After these things, verse 1, after these things, and this is after chapter 14 where Abram has been victorious in battle, after he has defeated these Four armies that were so powerful. After he had rescued Lot and brought him back along with all the goods and all the peoples of the cities that had been raided and pillaged. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And the picture is that the word is alive. It, it's, it's not just that the, God spoke his word, although that's, that's true. It's, it's, the picture is is that the word was sent and and went and came. It is alive. And it comes to Abram in a vision. And later on we'll find that this is a vision at night. We find that when the word comes to God, I'm sorry, comes from God to Abram, it comes with assurance. Latter part of verse B. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Do not be afraid. Why would Abram be afraid? Number of possible reasons. Abram was no longer anonymous. Remember, before chapter 14, Abram is comfortably anonymous in a remote, or at least a, he's out of harm's way. The people around him knew who he was, respected him. He, he was able to, we saw last week, form an alliance with three other individuals. But now Abram is on the world scene. And not just on the world scene. He is on the world scene in a big way. He has defeated an army that no one else has been able to defeat. He now has a target on his back. Not only that... It is most likely that the kings or at least significant leaders and a number of their men escaped. Is it likely that perhaps he fears that there will be vengeance against him? Do not be afraid. More than that, we find over and over and over again that when God comes to his people, their first response is to be afraid. They tremble and fall before him. Far from that idea that God is a lovable grandfather in the sky that is cuddly and nice, there is a bit of him that is, that is terrifying. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Even though God is just and righteous and no sinners can come into his presence, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Even though you are childless. Which seems to be, in this chapter, Abram's chief concern. 
He has seen God begin to fulfill his promises in all these other areas. He has reasons to hope in him. He, he has followed after God. And yet, the one thing that will mean that his line continues, the one thing that will make all of God's promises meaningful, that he will have a descendant and descendants, Nothing of that has come true yet. In fact, as time goes on, every marching day, he feels the urgency of his situation. Sarai, his wife, she's not young anymore. Time is fleeting. Do not be afraid, God says. And God gives him some significant promises. But I want you to see where he starts. He starts with locating where Abram's faith should be. He doesn't say, look, I I am going to do this. He doesn't start with telling him what he's going to do in terms of descendants. He starts with saying, I am your shield. The location of hope is in God himself. God identifies himself in relationship with Abram. God is not just a shield, he is Abram's shield. I am your shield. Abram is secure because God is protecting him. Abram is secure because God will deliver him. Abram is secure because God has promised it, because God himself is present. All of Abram's fears are put to rest in the presence of God. God gives an additional assurance, an additional promise. Saying, I am your shield, your very great reward. There are two ways of translating this. The English Standard Version, the New the New American Standard Bible, they, they both translate this, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. The, the picture there is, and that is a legitimate way to interpret it, both of these are faithful ways, but that, that picture is that there will be a future reward that God is promising him on that day. But the New King James Version and the New International Version, if you're using that translation, both have this phrasing, I am your shield, your very great reward. And the picture there is not only will you have a reward in the future that will be very great, but God is promising that he himself will be their reward. Abram's reward, Abram's treasure isn't going to be capped at, at earthly riches It's not going to terminate and end with having a a large family or a number of descendants. Abram's chief treasure is God himself. True faith trusts in God. For faith to please God, we must believe that he not only exists but that he is a rewarder for those who diligently seek him. Believing that God exists and believing that he is a rewarder, so God will grant us reward for what? For those who seek him. If we are diligently and earnestly in seeking after God, then he gives us the reward of our heart. Himself. Abram, I'm sorry, God is relocating Abram's hope from mere promises of what may come to himself. And our trust and our treasure is to center on God. And for the first time, I want you to notice something. Up till now, whenever God has come to Abram, it has been a monologue. That is, God comes and he says, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I am doing. But now, Abram responds. Now it's a dialogue. And there is a talking back and forth, one with another. 
This is the first time Abram speaks to God. And Abram, we find, is full of fear and doubt, concern. Look with me at verses 2 and 3. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go to go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. This would have been a servant born in his own home that he could have made his heir through some complicated legal ways. Then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my, in my house is my heir. He is laying his cards on the table. You have begun to fill your promises in these other ways, but the one way that matters, you have done nothing with. Abram's closest heir is not his heir at all. It is simply a servant. And I just want you to notice God's gracious response here in verse 4 and 5. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. If God were not himself, not immutably perfect, not immutably patient with us, can you imagine how he might have responded? I mean, God has been so gracious with Abram. Abram was an idolater, didn't know anything. God brings him into this land. He has made exceedingly great promises to him. He has protected him. He has enriched him. He has served him in so many ways that Abram probably has no idea of. And here Abram has the gall to question him. It's, it's like a small child, moms, dads, who you've been helping and serving and doing all these things for all day. And then they say, why don't you ever do anything fun? And at that moment, they don't realize it, but they came like this close to no longer existing. And rather than God losing patience with Abram, how dare you even suggest that I'm not going to fulfill my promises? Don't you know who I am? Haven't you seen what I've done for you? God makes him, not makes him a new promise, rather God expands on his promise, reassures him of it. His descendants will be as innumerable as the stars of the night sky. This is an incomprehensibly good promise. How does this play out? We see Abram's response to this promise and then God's action. This is one of the most important verses in all of, in all of Scripture. One of the keys... In fact, that that the Apostle Paul and that James will pick up on to argue for how we can know that our guilt has been dealt with. We read verse 6. And he believed in the Lord. And he, that's the Lord, accounted it to him, that's Abram, for righteousness. What does it mean that Abram believed? What is faith? A number of ways that biblical writers, theologians have tried to unpack this idea. Part of it is carried up that there is a, a content of faith. There is notitia, is the, the, the Latin word here. That it is there are things to be known. There are actual events in history that have happened that we must know about. It's the content of faith. But then there is, a, there is another aspect that we must have the, the conviction of faith. This is that we actually believe those things. It is we believe that Jesus really rose from the dead. It's not merely to know and assume, but that to have the conviction that those things really 
happened. And that those events are really real. And there is the commitment of faith. This would be the Latin word fiducia. That we are committing ourselves, body and soul, over to the Lord, resting entirely on the finished work of Jesus. So it's the content of faith that we have in the knowledge of our hearts. It is the will that we exert, the commitment that we exert, the conviction in our hearts that we know what is What Jesus has done is truly real and available and open and able to save us. And it is the commitment of the soul to entrust ourselves to rest in Christ and his work alone. And there is one more aspect. We might call it the treasure of faith. It is true faith doesn't just look on Jesus, on his death, on the cross, and like a ticket to get out of hell or to get into heaven. This past week, next door, the firehouse held a a carnival. And if you were to go and and purchase a a, a set of tickets, a booklet of tickets to be able to take rides, you would go and take that ticket and present it to the the person there at the gate for each ride and give it to them. And then they they might tear that ticket in half and, and give it back to you. And what do you do with that ticket stub? What do you do with the ticket once it's been punched, once it's been torn in half, once it's been used? What do you do? You throw it in the trash, don't you? It's no good for you anymore. It's over. We've punched the ticket, we get to go in and enjoy it, and then we forget. Or perhaps it's a a sentimental time. Maybe it's the first time me and... And my special someone got to go on this ride together. We're going to remember this day. I'm going to take this ticket stub and I'm going to put it in my wallet or I'm going to put it in a scrapbook somewhere. Some album and I'm going to remember it. And it becomes a sentimental thing. And here at church, it's pure sentimentality. We gather to remember, oh, that feels good. We walk away. But that's not what it means. Jesus is not a ticket that we are to tossed away because we no longer need it. He's done what he's supposed to do for us. We're good. We're fine. We don't need anything more. Nor is he merely the ticket that's that's to help us be feel sentimental about those events in the past. He is our, our treasure. Genuine faith treats Christ not as a ticket, but as a treasure. And prizes him. We see this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, when Paul writes, Whatever gain I had in this world, he writes, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing power, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Young people, there is something worth treasuring, something worth living for, something worth dying for. And that is to gain Christ. John Murray describes faith as the whole-souled movement of self-commitment To Christ. It's not an act only of the mind. It's not an act only of the will. It is an act of the whole being. Our mind, our will, and our affections. We see that Abram's faith is personal. Derek Kidner, commentating on this, draws us to these two aspects. It is both personal and propositional. We see it here. Abram believed the Lord, or in the Lord. That is, his his hope has been moved away from merely looking forward to the promises of God and what he might get from God, and now he's longing for God himself. Big change. Big change. He is personally trusting in God himself. More than that, it is propositional. That is, he is believing in what God says in what God has promised. You cannot believe the Lord without believing in the Lord. And you cannot believe in the Lord without believing what the Lord says. Because he believes the Lord, 
He is trusting what God says. The story doesn't stop here. It gets bigger. It ascends higher. It is richer. It goes deeper. It is... What happens next is... If, the, if, if this was a period here, our hope would, would die out. But we read what God does next is, is, is just phenomenal. God counted it to him as righteousness. God counted it to him as righteousness. That is, Abram is counted as righteousness, as righteous in God's sight, not because he has worked or applied himself, but because he has believed in God. In the time of the 15th and 16th centuries, the Roman Catholic Church, working from the Latin Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Greek and Hebrew scriptures. Looked at the Latin word for where we get the word justification. That word has two parts. Uh, That word is is justificare. Two parts. The first part indicating justice or righteousness. The second part, that is focare, indicates to, to make, to bring, And the idea is that God makes, they thought, God makes someone righteousness. That God makes someone righteous. That he infuses us through the sacraments of the church, through our our religious works and observance. He infuses us and makes us righteous so that when we come to God at the end of our lives, we have this accumulated righteousness that we can present back to God. And on that basis, then we may be saved. Maybe. Being the operative and key word. But Martin Luther, working not from the Latin, but going back to Hebrew and Greek, saw that it is not to make righteous, but to what our text tells us today, to count as righteous, or to reckon as righteous, or to declare as righteous. That is, On the basis of Abram's faith and on his faith alone, God credits Abram with righteousness that Abram doesn't have. Abram is still a sinner. But now in the sight of God, he is declared righteous on the basis, on account of his faith. This is what we receive when we truly believe in Christ. That is, we are credited with the righteousness of Christ, with an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is not ours, that does not belong to us, that we have no claim to. It is as if we are standing before the court of God and he there as our judge declares us not merely not guilty. Not guilty is an empty pardon. We... We cannot be merely not guilty and approach God. We need to be holy to approach him. We need to be righteous in his sight. So he doesn't merely declare us on the basis of our faith in Christ's finished work. He doesn't merely declare us not guilty. He declares us righteous in his sight. He, He imputes to our account righteousness that we have no right to. It's it's like walking out of here and going to the bank to pull your last dollar to pay a bill and finding finding an an innumerable, unestimable amount waiting for you. This is what we have Philippians 3, 9, not having a righteousness of my own, Paul says. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Or Romans 4, 1 to 5, we read it before. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Nothing, because Abraham didn't do anything here. 
If Abram would have done something and then believed, that would change the story. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Is it becoming apparent to you why justification by faith in Christ alone is so important? This is why it has been said that this is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. If we get this wrong, we get everything wrong. I mean, we could get everything else right, but if we get this wrong, it doesn't matter. The question that we have to ask is, do we believe this? Do we believe this? We sang a little while ago that our hope was not in me. I'd encourage you to go back over after this service. Look over that song again. It's not our righteousness. It's not our works. Nothing we could do. Nothing we could say. It's not in me, it's in Christ alone. Are you trusting in Jesus alone at this moment? Are you trusting in something that you have done in addition to Jesus? Certainly Jesus and his finished work on the cross and rising from the dead are essential. But we also must be doing these other things, you think. And you know that God will accept you because of these other things. Let me assure you right now, God counted Abram as righteous, not because he did these other things, but because he trusted in God alone. Are you trusting in God alone? Trust today. At this very moment, at this hour, right where you're sitting, you can call on him. In your heart, you can look to him. Knowing that outside of Jesus, you have no hope before God. No hope to be accepted, to be forgiven. No freedom from guilt. No hope or freedom from shame. But in Christ is righteousness. Trust in him today. But there is more to it than merely that. Some of, you, some of us have begun in faith alone in Christ. But now we're living as if we are continued to be accepted by God because we are doing enough. Brother and sister, that is a lie. Abram was not put on the, the treadmill of righteousness and works at this point. At every moment from this point on, he must and always trust in nothing else but God, just as you and I must trust in nothing else but God and his work in Jesus Christ. Your standing today isn't based on how well you have performed this week. It is based on Jesus. Salvation may be by faith alone and Christ alone. It is. But it is also not to be left alone. That is, faith that saves is never alone. And it ought then to produce in us. We do not work to make ourselves approved to God, but we ought to work as thanks to God for his work. That is because we have been counted righteous in Christ and brought into Christ and united with him through faith, we are to work on that behalf. We are to work in joy and in thankfulness. If we have contributed nothing except our sin to God's saving work, And if God justifies us, not on the basis of our work, but on Christ alone, then we have no grounds for pride. We, as Christians, ought also to be some of the most humble people in the world. Because we know, deep down, that the only reason we're accepted is not because we know a lot, or because we have done something, or because we have earned something It is because God has in his mercy declared us righteous 
through the empty hands of faith. More than this, we ought to be most happy. We have been delivered from eternal judgment. God is pleased with us. If you have been declared righteous in the sight of God this morning, brother and sister in Christ, God is pleased with you. For he sees you through Christ Jesus. We deserve nothing but judgment, and yet we have been credited as righteous. When shouldn't we ought also to be the most gracious of people? Having freely been given such righteousness, ought we not be ought we ought not to be free with our forgiveness to others? Forgiveness costs. It hurts to forgive. It's hard to forgive. And yet we who have been forgiven much, ought we ought ought we also not to forgive others? And shouldn't we be the most confident and hopeful? What does it matter what man may say or do to us? What what may ever have happened to us in the past? What may ever we have done in the past? What may ever happen in our world in the future? We may know that because in the sight of God we are righteous, that we have every reason to be confident that what Paul says in Romans 8, 31 to 32 is true. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So turn off the news and revel in this news. What Christ says, In Matthew chapter 6, perhaps you are wondering, you do not know what will happen this next week, this next month, with your finances, with how you will be provided for. Christ says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Having been declared righteous in the sight of God, we have such glorious and good promises. This past week, we as a family watched um, a play, Macbeth. It tells you a little bit of how nerdy we are. We watched it together, Shakespeare's Macbeth, and uh, once you get past the language, the, the, the difficulty of the language, there is beauty there. More than that, you see how guilt affects these characters. Macbeth and his wife, at the very beginning of the play, They conspire together to kill the king, betray the king, and thus Macbeth would become himself the king of Scotland. Soon after killing the king, Macbeth is overwhelmed with guilt. Does not know what to do. He sees, begins to see illusions, things that are not there. And with the blood still on his hands, he cries out, Will all great Neptune's oceans wash the blood clean from my hands? But indeed they cannot. 
And later on, when his wife, Lady Macbeth, is crying out over her own guilt, she cries out, Will not the perf- all the perfume of Arabia sweeten this little hand? And indeed, it cannot. And when she says, what's done cannot be undone, she is exactly right. What's done cannot be undone. But what we find in our text this morning is that though what's done cannot be undone, it can be justified by God alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Brothers and sisters, let us live, for we are free, free from guilt, free from sin, free from sin's power, free from sin's penalty. Let us live free, for we are free indeed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have done an abundantly good work, a gracious work, not calling us to give and apply ourselves to such a degree that if we will work, work so well and live so well, then we may be accepted in your sight. Rather, we are accepted in your sight on the basis of what Jesus has done, applied through the empty hands of faith. Oh God, thank you for your free gift. Thank you. We pray that you would work in us, that we may live in light of, its, in light of your grace, that your righteousness would become more evident in all of our lives. We pray all this in your son's holy name. Amen.